Hey everyone, I am so excited to have the New York Times bestselling author and world-renowned clinical psychologist, Dr. Shafali. She's back on the podcast and we here at MBG, especially my wife, Colleen, are huge fans of her work and her book, The Awakened Family, which has had a profound impact on us. And now she's back with another must-read book titled Superpowered transform anxiety there it is transform anxiety and do courage confidence and resilience i'm like god we all need that right now so timely so let's start there you know at the highest level 2020 has many of us feeling burnt anxious we've lost our superpowers (laughs) what's your what's your advice to just us us adults right now yes yes so in every moment, era, or crisis, we have a choice. However, when things get inundated upon us, we forget that we have a choice. So I'm just here to remind everyone that no matter how bad it is, how transformative this experience is, how shocking it is, we have a choice in how we navigate this. And really, the choice is very simple. It's the choice we make to walk down a path of lack scarcity, pessimism, dishevelment, or walking down the path of abundance, transformation, resilience, grit, courage. What choice will we make? And this was always a choice each day of our lives. But in the past, pre-pandemic, we were under the delusion, under the seduction that we didn't have to make this choice. Why? Because we weren't in crisis yet. So when we're not in crisis, we fall asleep, we become complacent, you know, we go through our routines and our organization and things fall into place. So we forget that we should make an intentional choice. So this crisis, as in any crisis, a divorce, a job loss, financial dishevelment, health loss, wakes us up to this choice. So I look at this at the, at the very deconstructive level, that we are back here, ready if we're, if we're willing and open to make this choice, we will walk down abundance or we're going to walk down lack. Which one are we going to do? And this is the difference between a thriver and a mere survivor. So the first step is always the most difficult. What's the first step in making that choice for us? Well, you know, the, it's hard because I'm a therapist. So I always talk about becoming conscious. And my clients always tell me, okay, easier said than done, because the thing I have to make conscious is unconscious. So how the hell do I make something unconscious conscious, right? So you're asking me, what's the first choice? It's like from the dark abyss, how do we find the light, right? It's all dark. So the only way really is if you're blessed enough to be in enough pain. Now, I am extremely... um, humble before the power of pain and I know that if there's enough pain we will reach for the light so how do we make that first choice it's it's a choice that is made for us it's subconscious how much are we hurting and if the pain is rock bottom enough we will wake up you know in therapy I wait for rock bottom experiences and I know that sounds sadistic and as a, I'm an opportunist waiting for somebody to fall apart so I can take advantage. But that's the only way we change is if we feel enough pain. So 
innumerable times I will tell clients, you think you're ready to make a choice and make a change, but the pain is not painful enough. Come back to me when it's painful enough. Because till then we're in limbo. So really it's a choice that gets just made through cause and effect, cause and effect, cause and effect, where we fall with the knee is bruised just too much and the scab cannot be uh, glossed over and we've bled too much and now we go, okay, I can either rise up or I can stay here and just wait to die. It's literally that gory and that brutal, but that's the momentum that we need. And I believe this crisis is pushing us there, you know, and if we're blessed enough to feel the pain enough, we are resilient enough to make that change. And what about the collective anxiety so many are suffering? Well, we have to understand and deconstruct what this collective anxiety is. The collective anxiety comes because we were not aware that life was always a crapshoot. You know, again, we were complacent to think that life was under our control. We were deluded to believe there was a prediction about the future, you know, and that we could linearly move toward the outcome. These were our shortcomings, our immature, naive delusions. Well, now we're going to wake up and realize that the anxiety we have right now is because we were living under delusion. Right? All our safety nets have been taken away. All our baubles and trinkets, our Broadway shows and our bars and our gossiping corners and our parties and our Prada shoes, all the things that we hid behind have been stripped from us. Now we're in anxiety. But I, what, what I'm trying to get at is that this anxiety is because the falsity of our life has been stripped from us. And we are now having to accustom ourselves to the organic, authentic nature of life, which is that it is a crapshoot. There is no future. It is only lived in the moment. But because we don't know how to live in the moment, we're having a panic attack. You know, well, give me my alcohol. You know, we are in detox and we're having severe withdrawal symptoms. So when the guy who goes into detox says, I have anxiety, the detoxifier says, no, no, don't worry. You're just in detox. You're just coming off the high that was created by false intoxicating drugs. And now you're finally seeing yourself in the mirror and you're panicking because you've never seen yourself. That's what this anxiety is about. We need to understand what it's about. It's not about the pandemic. It's about finally needing to be in our own home, meaning ourselves, and we're dying. We're like, I don't like myself. I don't like my partner. I really don't even like my children when they're home 24-7. And I should never have been a parent. And I need my hair dye, you know? So we're realizing that we don't like who we are. That's why we have anxiety. But what about, I totally got it. You know, I'm sure you've heard the cliche, you know, there's nothing more, you know, dangerous or powerful as being alone with your thoughts. But what about, what do you think it says about our need to connect physically, spiritually, emotionally, you know, IRL in real life with other human beings. And this is the opportunity for that. However, it will not look the way we thought it would look. It may not be through visceral touch. It may now have to be through uh, this virtual reality or through letter writing or through a different modality. Yes, it doesn't look the way we thought we would have connected. But let me tell you, we were a disconnected world before the pandemic. You know, this book that you were talking about, publishers came and asked us to write the book pre-pre-pandemic, two years ago, 
Why did they come to us two years ago? Because they realized anxiety is the biggest scourge rising in teenagers as of that moment two years ago. And no one comes to an author saying, please write me a book. Well, they did. And now, we, now we're talking about anxiety and disconnection. We've had it. You know, if anything, we are now reaping the manifestations of the previous disconnection. And now is the opportunity to turn it around. Yes, now we have to do it virtually, but let's do it. You know, let's start virtually and then we can move back into the physical. Let's not bemoan, oh, because I can't touch you, I'm just not going to talk to you, right? That's a cop-out. We were already disconnected. If anything, this is the opportunity to reinvigorate and to reconnect. So in terms of being disconnected, something else you've talked about pre-pandemic is, you know, buying into institutions, the institution of success, the institution of wealth. Can you, can you unpack what, what you meant by this and, and how it's relevant more than ever today? Sure. So my, my work around conscious parenting really is to highlight how unconscious we are. And I say this with compassion and humility, knowing I'm fully unconscious as well in many areas. So when a kid is born, right, when, when we conceive our kid pre, pre, pre-birth, We've already heavily conditioned them. How? Through our attachments and adherences to institutions. Before the child is born, they have a name. They have probably a gender identification that we bestow on them. We have ideas about success and achievement that we insidiously want to imbibe them with. We have religion. We have loyalty to tradition. We have family names. This is all pre-birth, right? tell them how to pray, who to pray to, what to believe in, how to love, who to love, how to be a girl, how to be a boy. This is all before they even come out of the womb. This is how heavily conditioned a child is. And the part about conscious parenting that is so paradigm shifting is that it demands of the parent that the parent look at themselves in the mirror and ask, how dare I audaciously project all my stuff onto my kid and not give my kid a chance to discover their authentic self. So institutions are society's way to create order and coherence. However, they become an enslaver of our freedom rather than a liberator of our freedom. How? You know, by by dictating how we need to be. You know, we go from one institution to the next. So before we join school, we're already under the siege of the institution of religion the the family traditions that we grow up in, uh, the color and creed we believe in, the race and what that comes with. This is all before we start school. And then when we start school, we fall into the education institution, which then comes with the institution of success and wealth and belonging and fitting in and comparing and comparison. And then it just goes on and on, higher education, then parenthood, grandparenthood, marriage, divorce, all those institutions. It's a linear list that is predetermined and given to the kid in the crib, along with the milk bottle. And the kid intuitively, subconsciously understands that his life is to be dictated. Her life is already prescribed. And it becomes one unending checklist after the other. You know, and then you reach 65 and you realize, oh, the, the happiness I was promised hasn't been delivered. And then you have a midlife you know, late midlife crisis. <laughs> uh, but now you have 16 grandchildren and you have to cook turkey for Thanksgiving. So you're like, ah, forget it. Let me just continue with the institutions. Let someone else break them. But the idea is not to break institutions. The idea is to understand how conditioned we are and what stigma 
we we are afraid of should we choose to break the institution you know in the most blatant way you see an an lgbtq person in in terror of coming out right or you see a woman terrified of getting a divorce you see a a young girl terrified of getting a boycott you know all these ways that we can't cross lines because of the great stigma that has been indoctrinated into us that we that we sh- shall abide by these institutions or we will be ostracized so how do we break free of these institutions and i'm just cur- curious purely on an educational level is the you know is the institution of of school as we know it being uh, reimagined if you will because of covid when you know, we talk about you know, private schools, college, so forth. Now you've got pods emerging at at an early age. Just I'm curious, from an education standpoint for children, do you see that as a moment in time we're accelerating a new trend and like reimagining what an institution is in terms of education for kids? And then for for parents, for us, like how how do we break free? Is this a moment where we we're reimagining these institutions of? of purpose, of wealth, and so on. I I think this is a pivotal moment to reimagine. However, if it's done out of reactivity, we may fall back into just a new trend. So the consciousness with which we reimagine needs to take the foreground. So we have to understand that if we just create a pod that teaches the same adherence to institutions but is just looking different it doesn't matter then you're they're still enslaved by the same ideology of success and wealth and fitting in so it's the consciousness that needs to change and you asked how do we break out of these things is when you can see through the matrix and pop the bubbles and realize oh we've just been living in one big giant bubble and thinking it's reality you know plato's allegory of the cave was perfect right these people sitting chained up looking at the shadows on the wall believing it is real life not realizing it's created by the sun outside the cave and none of them dare to step out because it's so scary right but one goes out and sees the sun and realizes oh my god my brothers it's not real life these are these are illusions caused by this big old grand light called the sun but no one believes him so it's consciousness and that sun is the symbol of consciousness like seeing things as they are our wealth doesn't define our authentic spirit our success doesn't define our authentic spirit so whether we sit in a, a pod or on a leaf or in a boat it, that's not the issue the issue is can we detach from our adherence to these institutions as defining our worth this is the problem you know if a, if a woman in her in her 40s is not a mother she is made to feel stigmatized as if she's lesser than if she's not married if a man is not wealthy if he's not a cutthroat competitor you know and i'm talking about the main archetypes of society you know we don't have room to define worth outside of these boxes and that's what needs to change so whether we're a parent or we fall into one of those archetypes or we don't what what should we be, I, I know it's hard to generalize but in your opinion what should we all be focused on what should we all be doing more of to you know break break out of this illusion, if you will, and, and be free, be more conscious, be more enlightened, happier individuals, individual, you know, human beings. Yeah. What should we be doing? Well, I think the key realization is that we are nature. 
what that means is we are exactly a mirror and resonance of the nature outside. We're not these uh, scientific, progressive, technological, robotic beings out there to make a killing. We are just the leaf and the dust and the sunbeam. And understanding our essence will remind us how impermanent we are. And when we are reminded of how impermanent we are, immediately we become humble and we realize that we need each other because we cannot live in isolated nuclear pods. We need community. And when we realize that, we automatically enter this state of transcendental love, you know, not possessive love, not controlling love, not, oh, you're my child and I love you, but just love, like you become become one with nature. And so that's a uh, that's an ideological understanding. But in practice, what that leads you to is the quest for a moment by moment practice. And the only moment by moment practice that there is, is called meditation. And people think meditation means to go into a cave and never come out and, you know, wear a loincloth and, and sit like with a snake around your neck. No, that is the most misunderstood idea of meditation. Meditation means to understand that life is only lived in the present moment. And when we embrace that, we embrace both impermanence and interconnectivity at the same time. And when we do these two things, life is in the moment. It's only in the moment. It's only in the now. Then we immediately begin to have greater accountability, really, because we see how our actions in the moment affect the next moment and then affects the next moment. And now we're, we're treading very carefully, not cautiously, but very attuned, very aware, very awake. And then that's where joy comes from. Joy comes from only living in the moment. Happiness could come from your Bentley and your cute wife, but not joy. Hap and therefore, when your Bentley you know, breaks down and your wife leaves you, you're like, I'm not happy anymore. Yeah, because you weren't meant, happiness is transient because anything obtained from the external world is ephemeral. But joy is between you and your connection to your authentic present moment. That is as permanent as anything can be. I love that. So you also, you talked about nature and, you know, what, what role does nature play? I'm curious, you know, do you spend time in nature? Do you ever prescribe nature? You know, you talk about meditation and you talk about nature and, and, and being connected. What, what role does nature play in our search for joy, connection, consciousness, everything? the number one preeminent spot is nature. Now, I don't mean going and sitting on a tree branch, understanding nature. And when you understand nature, you do want to be in the trees. But understanding that the, we are nature, we have forgotten who we are. And people, you know, go, oh, go spend time in nature. <laughs> no, go and understand your nature because your nature is the nature of nature. And we've gotten so far from understanding our intrinsic nature. We are no more and no less than the bacteria, the virus, the fungi, the deer, and the worm, and the leaf. And our delusion is what has caused destruction on earth because the human is deluded. Sorry to say, we are deluded. You know, we think we are our race. We think we are our religion. We think we are our cars in the driveway. We are not that. We are something beyond that. And until we go back to what we are, 
we will destroy each other and destroy the earth as we are doing beautifully. We are right on task for that. If there's one thing we're doing impeccably is hating each other and destroying the earth. We should get an A++. We do it beautifully. No other animal does it with such suave, such brilliant destruction, such brilliant progress, which is actually de-progress as we do. We have destroyed the earth just in the last 30 years. We have done it superbly. So on the subject of destruction, I'll, I'll segue to your, your latest must-read book, Superpowered, because you talk about, and I, and I believe this, you know, we were all born with superpowers, and then we've done a good job of destroying them over time. So can, can you talk about that destruction that's going on as human beings yeah. and how that evolves as we grow older? Yeah, don't I have such an uplifting, positive, <laughs> eu euphoric message? Don't you love time with me? No, <laughs> this is great, better. though. You have look. You have to be. You know, you have to be a realist. You have to be pragmatic, and then you have to marry that with a plan and a message of optimism and hope. What you do, so you know, yeah, you're yeah. you're a realist. Yeah, I, I I know how we can go back to our superpowers and go back to our authentic nature. But people don't want to do it, right? Because we are capitalist and consumerist and we have forgotten that it is in the ordinary moments where the greatest joy lies. But I do believe the pandemic is teaching us a harsh lesson, you know, a quick crash course in how to return back to the ordinary moment. So my book, Superpowered, talks about what we've done to our children. Our children had these original powers and power is an acronym and P stands for presence. Our children came with presence, the ability to attune to the present moment. Watch any kid under the age of three and no one is more present. No one lives in the time zone of the present more than a young child. So we were present. What happened to us? We became distracted and hyper and uh, consumed and numbed and addicted. What happened to our presence? Right. And then we were original. When, when we were young, we didn't even know we had to compare ourselves or we needed to sit at the table with the geeks and that's the table with the athletes. We didn't know we were supposed to be categorized. We were fully original. We were whole. W stands for whole. We looked in the mirror and we thought we were amazing. We didn't know, wow, brown skin wasn't, you know, applauded and lauded. We, we didn't know that to be darker skinned was to be derided. We didn't know these things. We were taught these things. We were whole. We felt good about ourselves. We didn't think we needed to become anything. We were already full of our completeness. So P stands for present. O stands for original. W stands for whole. E stands for energized. You know, children had energy before we, you know, numbed them with rote learning and memorization and grades and fear of, of success. They, you know, I, you remember your kid waking up going, what's the adventure for today? What are we doing today? They loved playing in the garden. They loved looking under leaves. They loved playing with bugs and sticks and stones. What happened to all that? Well, what happened is institutionalization happened. We sent them to school where they learned to unschool their true authentic nature. And then R stands for resilient. You know, children, you can see, they, they go on their knees, they stand up, they fall down, they cry, they move on. They don't cling to their moods and to labels and judgment of who it is they are. That gives resilience, you know, and now we've lost that. So in, in the book, we talk about what each superpower becomes and then how to go back into each superpower. You know, how to stop living in the future through what ifing. We call it what ifing, you know, and we're doing that a lot in the pandemic. What if this happens? What if that happens? 
Well, is it happening right now? No. So we have to come into the what is. You know, we talk about how we can flip the switch. We can very well feel anxious by the pandemic, or we can use this as an opportunity to flip the switch. We can also look at look at this discombobulatory time as a time for renewal, as a time for re-envisioning, as a time for rehauling. Again, it's the mindset. You know, do we have a growth mindset or do we have a fixed mindset? We talk to children about how their desire to fit in needs to be replaced with a, a deep desire to belong to themselves. You know, this is the book that you wish your parents had so they could explain to you why you were such a, you know, crazy kid and why you were so worked up when you were young, but our parents didn't have the language. So this gives parents the language to be able to talk to their kids and their kids can talk back and they can have a meaningful discussion around something meaningful. The anxiety is not something to be denied or ignored or poo-pooed. You know, don't tell your kid, eh, why are you feeling like that? Don't tell your kid, be positive. You know, we're not, we're not removing anxiety. We're honoring anxiety and helping the kid experience the anxiety and transform it into its next iteration. So let's stay on anxiety for a moment. I'm curious, what do you think is driving anxiety with kids? And then what's, what's in a real world, world example of how we should talk about anxiety when it surfaces with the child? Sure. So crazy kids and a, a crazy parents and a crazy culture cause, <laughs> cause anxiety in our kids because we parents are crazy. And we've bought into all these institutions. You know, there is no such thing as culture. Culture is us. We've bought into things in culture that we then complain about. You know, oh, my kid is stressed out. Yeah, you helped your kid get stressed because you told your kid if he doesn't get an A, he's not going to succeed in life. You told your kid every day, life is difficult. Life is a struggle. There's not enough money. You know, you plagued your kid with lack-based messages. And now you're wondering why your kid is stressed out. You know, you taught your kid to be stressed out. You know, you, 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 you know, are an addict to your Netflix and your numbing devices and you're on social media all day. Why wouldn't the kid be? So this is what makes a kid anxious. So easy, so simple, but so difficult for the parent to own up to, you know, so difficult for us to look in the mirror and say, hey, I get it. I get I'm crazy. I, I, I've bought into all this garbage of culture. I'm so sorry. And I can get, I can see why you're anxious. So that's what drives the anxiety. What do we do? The first thing we do is we allow for the expression of whatever is showing up. So anxiety doesn't show up in typical ways. You're lucky if your kid says, mom, I'm feeling anxiety. Wow, what a kid you have. Mostly, it's what my kid does at 17. She's rude. She, you know, bangs the doors. And I'm like, uh, why are you banging the door? And she's, I don't know. <laughs> Because she doesn't know, because she's so disconnected all day from the pressures of school. You know, so I go, okay, you're feeling anxious. And she's like, so anxiety shows up through procrastination, overeating, over drinking, over numbing, withdrawal, irritability. You know, it doesn't look like somebody biting their nails, if only it was so easy. We have to understand what our kids are going through in this pandemic. And we have to notice our own signs of burnout, you know, when we're just staring like zombies at our screen. We have to go, whoa, am I anxious? When we're eating our 11th cookie, we have to go, whoa, am I anxious? You know, we, we have to go, what, what's going on inside? So validation, permission to express, non-judgmentalism, and please do not try to out-positive talk your kid, you know? Instead, lean into it, go, I get it. I totally get it. If the kid goes, mom, there's 17 monsters under my bed, go, oh my goodness, really? 
let's go look. And you're like, there's nothing under your bed, but you don't say that. You go, I get that you're seeing them. Tell me, draw them out for me. Let's talk to them. What are their names? That's if you have a young kid, right? If you have an older kid who's sulking in his room with a, with a t- you know, T-shirt, a hoodie over their head in a dark room with a screen, please don't ask them, are you anxious? You know, it's written all over their face. So what do you do in that case? Well, you build connection. And I don't make it, I don't want to make it sound like it's so easy. It's so difficult to connect with a teenager. It's so difficult. But the only way forward is to build connection. Even if that means you walk around in a hoodie and you start playing video games and you talk in their language, you find a way to connect, you know, and allow your kid to see that you see them. They don't have to talk. Connection doesn't mean talk, talk, talk or hug, hug, hug. Connection just means I see you, I hear you, I get you. I don't know how to help you. You're freaking me out, but I I am here. I'm not going anywhere. And just that, you know, parents think it's some big concoction of therapeutic advice. Sometimes it's just being present, just saying, hey, I don't have the answers. I'm here. This sucks. It's totally messed up. I don't know what to do. Let's do this mess together, you know. So a couple thoughts. So one, what I love about what you just said and what I love about the book is whether you're a parent or not, these seem like pretty good rules for life <laughs> in terms of friendships, family. It doesn't matter if you have a kid or not. They sound like pretty good rules in terms of being more empathetic, being a good listener. But but I, I am curious. So with regards to being a parent and kids, so Deepak Chopra once said on this very podcast that, you know, as parents, all you need to be concerned about up until age three is you just have to love your children. That's it. Like, you know, forget about the Mandarin lessons or whatever, all the crazy stuff people are trying to do to their kids, you know, between age, age zero and three, just love them. That's it. So after age three, is it connection what, what do you think is you know it's hard to create like a laundry list as a parent because then you fall into the you know the institution <laughs> paradigm if you will then it's you're recreating an institution like how do you what do you say to parents you know in terms of a north star guiding light and parenting like post age three is it connection is it empathy what is it Yeah. So I would say if I had to give two things, I would say one is ideological and one is practice. And if you don't have the ideological, you won't have the practice. So the philosophical alignment needs to be that we're living in a matrix that tells me how I should live my life. But I'm evolved enough to now understand that that paradigm is based in fear and lack and scarcity. And I'm not buying into it. I'll do it because I live in this world, but I'm not going to belong to it. I'm not going to enslave myself and give my life to it. I'll do what works for me, but I'm opting out. And just that freedom is going to now change your practice with your kid. Now you can attune to your kid. And I love the word attunement because it holds within it energetic presence attention, focus, and connection, right? Connection, again, is not kiss and hug your kid. It's connecting to who your kid is versus the kid you thought you should have, according to culture. And that is the key. Who is your kid? Now, I understand all the kids in the neighborhood all know how to skate and stand on their head, but who is your kid? I'm so sorry, your kid doesn't smile at the at the camera. You know, that's your kid. <laughs> that That's what happened to me when, the, when my daughter was two, the the birthday photographer said, listen, I'm a really good photographer and I'm a really nice guy, but man, I just can't get your kid to smile. 
And I was like, yeah, trust me to get the bloody kid who doesn't smile for their two-year-old birthday party. I was like, I am going to call the clown and the kid will smile. Right? I was like, all the other children are smiling. Why the hell is my kid not smiling? And that's when I began to become aware of my shoulds and my lack, how I went into lack in comparison. And I realized how messed up I was. Like, I couldn't even tolerate a two-year-old being a two-year-old. I was like, she's messing up my agenda. She's wasting my money. She's spoiling my party and my future-based memories. Like, she's messing this whole thing up at two. You know, and never mind, the kid didn't care about the birthday party. The kid couldn't care less. She was sitting in a corner, just dirtying her dress, eating chocolate. So I saw in a slow-paced movie how I was already messing things up. And I asked myself, I remember, Shafali, is this your ego that you work so hard on the meditation mat to curb? Is it showing up in parenting? And my other voice said to me, nah, it can't show up in parenting. You love your kid. Love doesn't mean ego. And that's when I began to formulate conscious parenting because I realized, holy moly, love without consciousness is full of ego. It's self-love. You know, it's love for me, 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 me in the guise of love for the kid until it is tempered with brutal, cultivated consciousness. And that's when I began waking up. Never mind, I'd already ruined my kid because by the time I really woke up, she was already three. And I was like, oh my goodness, how did I fall for this? And I fell for it. Because culture, I'm blaming culture, because I fell for culture, for the damn traditional paradigm that's out there in culture. And I'm like, all the books talk about that the kids should smile at their birthday party, right? I'm just being that kind of parent. And I realized it was time for a new paradigm in town. And the only question to, I had to ask myself is, did I risk being the one to, to break that paradigm, you know? And so... You know, what do you do when, when you're struggling, you know, as a parent, I'm curious, like when you're having a rough day, so what, what do you do in terms of getting yourself back on track as a parent, you know, in terms of parenting, having a rough day, and then also just as an individual, what do you do when you're just like, oh man, you know, today's, today's rough. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I know now through my spiritual practice that it's all me. So my ego will say it's my kid, ego will say it's the COVID, ego will say it's my friend uh, or the stupid people driving in traffic, right? Or whatever, not wearing masks or whatever my, my belief du jour is that's being violated. But I know well enough now that it's all me and my attachment to my agenda and my movie. And I now can see it as it happens and I I can curtail myself, I can cur curtail that wild ego. But it used to be wild and rampaging in the past. Now it's more tame, but I still have hard days. And I take a time out, you know, I realize that my hard days are coming from too much buy-in to culture. I've bought into some false ideology about how things should be, and life is not cooperating, and the sun isn't shining as brightly as the weather forecast said, and now I'm pissed off. So I know I'm out of alignment with my nature and, and nature's nature, which is impermanence. And I have to get back to that. So I have to take a time out, go back and sit with myself, reconnect, you know, go out for a walk and, and realize that all my expectations are causing my suffering. I am causing my own suffering because I'm expecting reality to give me something other than it is, period. Whether it's my, my partner, my child, life, you know, I'm expecting something that isn't. So when I then recalibrate back into the isness of the moment, I then come back into civilization 
and I allow myself to interact. And then other times I just lose my shit. That's what I do. (laughs) (laughs) And drink some wine and (laughs) go cry and gossip and moan and groan and revel in being a victim like everyone else. So you mentioned time out. And as a parent of a almost four-year-old girl, I have to ask you about the the time out when that toddler or maybe it's a teenager, you know, is, is just having a temper tantrum and, you know, the, the time out. I know that there are the time out is now controversial. What What's your what's your take on the time out where you just say to the kid or the, the tween or whatever age group is you need to take a Take a moment, if you will. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't mean time out as, as the, t- the, the tactical strategy of admonishing and punishing your kid. No, an internal time out, really. Sure. But the what about out- for kids what, when that happens? When, I know for, I got it for you for time out. What about for kids when you just need to like, hey, like this isn't working here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if it's a, if it's a kid you can't leave, you know, like they, they need your presence around, you just, start, you just kind of quieten down. And, you know, kind of bring in all those arrows back into the quiver and you just settle down and you just, you know, tell you tell them mommy's really tired right now. Suddenly you go brain dead or just say daddy's, you know, daddy forgot everything like daddy's just being quiet, you know, and just go into stillness. And the kid will eventually die down in their temper tantrum because they're not getting the feedback that they were they were wanting. And with teenagers who you can leave alone in the house. You know, I say to my kid all the time, oh, I see time for me to go on a walk or time for me to go upstairs or time for me to let you have your space. You know, I get you. You're, I, I See, the, the traditional parenting paradigm will say when a kid is acting out to go in and fix it and control and say, don't you dare. And what did you say? And, and open the teen's door. You know, parents tell me how the teen banged the door and they opened the door. And I said, you did what? Do you understand you went into the lion's den? What did you do? What were you thinking? I, and so I, I answer for them. I go, I know what you were thinking. You were thinking you're going to go in there and straighten your kid out. And sure, sometimes you can. But what you're doing is you're disconnecting. You know, because we can't honor that our kids, teens, our partners, anyone has a right to their feelings. You know, the feelings don't have to be your feelings. They don't have to look your way as long as they're not destroying property. You know, and for me, words like because parents always say, but what if they curse you out? And I say to them, you know, in that moment, you don't need to fix Paris. You know, you don't need to fix the entire civilization. You can just it's okay. It's just a word. If your ego can handle it, you can revisit later, you know, but telling them in the heat of the moment, you know, shut up. Like, how dare you talk to me like that? You're just playing with a with a person who's unconscious and your consciousness is at their level and you can never change things, right? And who said it? Gandhi, Einstein, you can't change things at the same level of consciousness that created them. And that's what we do all the time. You know, we tell our kids, stop yelling. And we're yelling. Stop being rude. And we're being rude. You know, we're so silly. The biggest antidote is stillness and space. You know, I just take it as like my time out. Oh, this is my my time to exit. And if I'm with a toddler, it's my time to just quieten down and just, you know, lie down and tell the kid, oh, my stomach is hurting right now. And they'll, they'll can you be my nurse? And your kid will change. Like, oh, okay, I'll be a nurse. <laughs> you know, that's what's so great about young kids. They transform their energy, you know, but you have to be creative to help them. I love that. So to close, 
you know, I'll, I'll tap into the, the the realist and and optimist in you. What what worries you right now? And on the flip side, what are you excited about? Ah, uh, if if I do allow myself to worry, I know that I'm not accepting the isness of human nature as it is. But it, when I worry, I worry that we are becoming automatons. I worry that our kids are addicted to social media, and we've fried their brains completely. I worry that we are becoming more Botox, more, you know, implanted and more artificial. I worry that we're becoming more inauthentic and more sheep to the slaughterhouse. But I then create the antidote for myself and I go, it is what it is. And I create my joy. So how do I create my joy? by teaching, being passionate about helping people alleviate their suffering if they listen to me, if they want to learn with me. And I am going to live my life joyfully. You know, I'm not going to buy into the future and I'm not going to buy into lack and I'm not going to buy into what culture tells me I should do. And I'm going to, I'm going to own my freedom. You know, that's how I, I determinedly live in joy. I love that. And I I just have to drill into social media because there's a great documentary on Netflix, The Social Dilemma, which, wow, eye-opening. So I have to ask you, social media kids, you know, what are your ground rules if you were to provide advice to parents out there? You know, should they be on it? What ages is it okay? Like, what's your general advice to parents out there and kids? So my daughter was, you know, 12 when it all came out. So I was dying for my iPhone more than her. So I, I was very pleased to give her the iPhone, not realizing I'm giving her a grenade. And so now I'm, I'm it's so, <laughs> so she's, she's, uh, didn't she's, realize uh, I was giving her a grenade. Yeah, I didn't. I was so excited. I was like, here's, here's my grenade and here's yours. And I didn't realize it was going to blow up in our face. And I see the effects of it. And I deeply regret it, but I have to be compassionate with my generation. We didn't know. We were completely befuddled and beguiled by it. We wanted it more than anything. We were licking our iPhones when they came out. So now we know better. So now I hold young parents like you responsible to not give your kids anything that's mobile with an app till they're teenagers. And I only say teens because you will not be able to hold out a minute longer because they will lock you up and you will be found in the dungeon. <laughs> so that's the really best you can do is till 15, like 13, 14. If you're lucky to have lovely children, then they'll keep you alive a little longer. But So till teens. So no screens till teens. That's my little dogma. And, uh, you know, connect with your kids. The TV is like utopia. I'm like, let's go back to the TV, you know. <laughs> the kid couldn't carry it around. You could hide the remote. You could unplug it. They couldn't put it in their pocket and run away from home, you know. So there's no excuse. It is a drug. It is toxic. If I had known better, I would never have done it. And now my kid is toast. I'm telling you, complete addict. 100%. 100%. And now I'm I'm too scared for my life to take it away. But I should technically, if I was brave enough, I would, you know, create detox centers and put her in it. There is, you mentioned TV. There is some good TV. I've, I've discovered Daniel the Tiger, which I love watching. Daniel the Tiger is like a uh, redux of Mr. Rogers. 
and it's it's cute. I'm like, oh, I love the messages here. I love the life lessons here. Let's watch this together. This is great. This is my favorite yeah. thing to watch with you. Yeah. But I, I hear you. It's an issue, and I think we're all trying to figure it out. And I think you know the good news is I, I think the social dilemma and it is making people a lot more aware about how harmful social media can be to whether it's kids or adults in a world that is polarizing and caters to extremes. Yes. You know, now it's no longer grandma who's criticizing your tight dress, showing your cleavage. Now it's everybody out there, you know, now it's just like everybody and their grandma and our girls are suffering and our boys too. And that's why anxiety is on the rise. Back to this book. This book will help kids <laughs> to at least understand what they're going through and have a language. And it's filled with, you know, illustrations and journal writings and, 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 you know, diary entries. So it's like a workbook and it'll help parents a lot uh, to deconstruct anxiety with their kids. I love it. Well, let's close there. And whether, look, I think whether you're a parent or not, I think we can all learn from Superpowered. I love the book. There are lessons for just adults being better humans, which I love. So again, congratulations on another incredible book. It's always an honor to have you here. We, we love your work, Dr. Shafali. Thank you. Jason, thank you. Thank you very much.